Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Before we start, a huge thank you to all my Patreon supporters, but especially my new supporters on Patreon this week. That's Neil Lloyd, Nancy Perron, and fellow supporter of the world's premier football team, Steph Jackson. With bonus episode 15 released last week, I hope you all enjoy the extra episodes and other exclusive content. I really appreciate your support. As some of you may know, my current favourite true crime podcast is Sword and... Only kidding. It's Disgraceland. Have you listened? If not, I can really recommend it. I even listen to it instead of my role model Alan Partridge on the way to work at the moment. Alarmingly, Disgraceland has all the things this show is lacking. Great music, humour and expert production. What we do have in common though is great stories. Some of the material from the host Jake and his team is just awesome. Please take a listen and let me know what you think. I should say that I also still really enjoy They Walk Among Us, True Crime Enthusiast, Murder Mile and Red Handed 2. If you don't listen, please give them a go. Just so many great crime shows. This week's story is a cracker with more than one shocking twist. Murder, awful sexual assault and brutal violence all over a large number of years. But before we start, let's set some context by checking out the events at the time of the key event, the 3rd of October 2008. Girls Aloud are at number one with The Promise. At number four were my least favourite festival band, well, after Elbow that is, The Kings of Leon, with a song that you never hear played on the radio, well, not more than what seems like a thousand times a day in a way, Sex on Fire. I would rather listen to Horses by Dazzling Dazza. No, really. Number one in the US was Pink with So What? And heading to beautiful Australia, top of their album chart was, oh dear, The Kings of Leon with Only by the Night. Leon? Did I mean Leon? Ah, same difference. For all those fans of the band who are now feeling annoyed that I'm mocking them, why is that? Why do we feel so defensive about the music we like, but yet at the same time, we don't want everyone else to like it either? I mean, if that was the case, you may as well just be a fan of Bruno Mars. But I digress. In the news this month were two criminals, George Bush and O.J. Simpson. Ah, slip of the tongue. Bush, of course, wasn't a criminal. Silly me. But O.J. was when he was found guilty in Vegas on charges of kidnapping and armed robbery. Spotify was launched this month. And as the financial crash began to really bite, Iceland received a 1.3 billion euro payout from the International Monetary Fund, the first European country to require an emergency loan as a result of the financial crisis. And in the UK, 500,000 mortgage holders were left in negative equity after house prices dropped 15% since the previous summer. Quantum of Solace, the 22nd James Bond film, starring Daniel Craig and Olga Kurienko, premiered... (laughs) Kurienko, even, premiered in London. I've walked out of Hamlet three times as well. Life's just too short. But I also struggle with James Bond films almost as much. They just seem to go on and on, don't they? Or is that just me? Mind you, my cultural taste is, well, dubious to say the least. 
I really enjoyed The Greatest Showman recently. And my best night out, except for watching The Mighty League United, is watching an Oscar Wilde play. I even like Frankie Boyle. But enough of me. Who'd have thought it, huh? As the tabloids may have said, middle-aged man in talking about himself, shocker. Right, time to move on to the story, I think. The city of Norwich is the county town of the eastern county of Norfolk, around 100 miles northeast of London. Of course, listeners to this podcast will know that Norwich is home to legendary broadcaster, the man I aspire to, Alan Partridge. Alan isn't the only legend from the city. It was also home to surely the greatest politician of our generation and a dancer to rival the very best, Ed Balls. Comedian Stephen Fry too. 13 or so miles northwest of Norwich is Great Witchingham. It was there that a young couple pulled over when they saw a tyre by the side of the road. What they saw next was horrendous. An old man was lying dead on the grassy verge of Rabbit Lane. His body had been semi-concealed under wooden fencing and there was dried blood on his face. Shocked at what they had seen, they immediately called the police. Local officers quickly arrived and they identified the body as 73-year-old Gordon Boone. And they soon realised this was no innocent accident, but a particularly nasty murder. The 73-year-old retired cider factory worker, a father of five, had been strangled and at the post-mortem this was revealed as the cause of death. But worryingly, he had two black eyes, bruising to his lip and forehead, and it looked as though he may have been restrained or even tortured, as one of his arms and a leg had been bound with a ligature. He was pretty badly beaten up. As the inquiry began, police realised that Gordon Boone was well known to them, and had spent some time in prison for highly unpleasant crimes. In 2001, he had been sent to the slammer for six years, and placed on the sex offenders register for life for sexual offences against three girls under the age of 16. One of the girls he'd attacked had been sexually assaulted after Boone had given her a large amount of alcohol, played games of strip poker, and then taken pornographic photographs with a Polaroid camera. Journalist Patrick Barkham, writing in the Guardian newspaper, detailed more about the background of Gordon Boone and the influences which shaped him. Boone's father was in the army. His mum was unreliable and promiscuous, according to family members, and Boone and his brothers and sisters were put into care. Two of his brothers were later sent to Australia, and Boone was packed off to live with an aunt in Bedfordshire. It was in Luton that he met his future wife, Andrea Spink, on a night out at a social club. She said, When I first met him, I didn't like him. He asked me out and I nearly didn't go, but then I thought, I wouldn't like to be stood up, so she went. But Andrea wasn't too enamoured, as she still felt able to go and work as a nanny in the US for two years. But when she came back to Luton, Boone was still hanging out at the same club. This time he made a much better impression on Andrea, and the couple fell in love and went on to be married. Speaking after his death about her marriage... Andrea said that Boone was not a big man physically, but he was domineering. If he'd say jump, I'd say, how high? But back then, this was sadly not uncommon and they settled down. God, don't you just hate that expression? What's it mean? 
And they went on to have a son, Philip, and twin girls, Andrea and Ruth. Tragically, Ruth died at just 18 months old, and severely autistic Andrea Jr. lived in a nursing home from the age of two for her whole life. We can only imagine how this was for the family, but Andrea says that when she was with her sick daughters in hospital in London, Boone never even visited them. Happily, Andrea did go on to have two more perfectly healthy children with Boone, and they were called Katie and Christopher. This tragedy changed how Andrea behaved with Boone, and she began to stand up to him much more. Angela says that one day, when Boone was really snotty with her, she decided she'd just about had enough, and she left Luton to join her parents, who'd moved to Norfolk. Boone followed, and things changed, and he changed a little bit, said Andrea. In the interview with Patrick Barkham of The Guardian, Andrea told him how, despite the slight changes in behaviour, Boone continued to rule the household with a mix of authority, paranoia and helplessness. His family recall him asleep in a chair in the living room in front of the TV, having chosen what they would all watch. But he did always work hard at the cider factory, which enabled him to control the family even further through managing their finances. Boone, as a father, well, he was a bit of a know-all, and he was always right. But he wasn't violent, at least with Andrew and the children. But she said he did have an incredibly high sex drive, believing that he could have sex when he wanted it, just because they were married. And he could get quite unpleasant when Andrea refused. Socially, the pair didn't do too much together. After all, Andrea was looking after her young family. But that didn't stop Boone's trips to the boozer to play darts and dominoes. And when he came back drunk, this is when he would tell Andrea about all of her faults. She said, The longer I kept quiet because he's ranting and raving, that made him worse. The kids used to say, For God's sake, Mum, answer him. And I'd just say, What's the point? It was around this time that Boone started to sexually abuse his daughter Katie. It started from when she was eight until she was about 16, when she told her mum what had been happening. But maybe it was a sign of those times that they grew up in, but Andrea and Boone did not split up over this abuse. Katie moved away to London. Her siblings were also grown up and gone. But although Andrea and Boone still lived together, they lived very separate lives, and Andrea never slept with her husband again. It was in 2001 when other claims were made against Boone for assaulting young girls. This time Andrea did leave her husband and Boone didn't try to follow her. Boone was arrested, charged and eventually persuaded to plead guilty to sexually assaulting a girl he applied with alcohol and another girl. His daughter Katie went to see her dad sentenced and she was a regular visitor when he was in prison. She said, I went to the cells and spoke to him because I wanted to know why he did it. Still to this day, I don't know why. He wouldn't answer. He couldn't tell me why. With details about Boone's history shared in the press, there weren't many people in the local community who shed many tears for Gordon Boone. As you listen, do you feel any sympathy after just a brief summary of his crimes? And this was reflected by the response to police appeals for information. Two months after the murder, the police admitted they were struggling to make any progress. In fact, they'd received just two telephone calls from the public about the murder. 
Desperate to appeal to the local community, where they believed the answer to the mystery lay, they called on Boone's eldest son, Philip, who made an emotional plea via the media, saying, Even if you can't forgive him, please remember what we are going through, he said. We can't ignore what he's done, but nobody deserves to be murdered. Detectives began to piece together Boone's life from his release from prison in 2006. He'd initially been placed on licence in a hostel, where he could begin to build a life after jail, closely monitored by the probation service. He moved from there to his own flat and sheltered accommodation in the centre of Norwich. Whilst there, he began to establish a routine, where he walked from his home to the shop every day to buy the two daily papers, the Mirror and the Sport, before heading to the pub to see his friends. Was it someone in this circle who had uncovered his past and decided to take revenge for his crimes? Or someone else who had murdered Boone due to what he had done? Detectives didn't think so, but they were struggling. In his flat was a large quantity of bondage-related porn. Had he been involved in a sexual encounter that had gone too far? But that didn't quite fit with the facts of his disappearance. When police had been called to his flat by his son Philip and had broken in to gain entry, it looked as though Boone had just nipped out for a moment as the TV was still on and there was half a cup of tea still left in a mug. Officers were puzzled. But then they received a breakthrough. One potential suspect in the case was a fellow ex-prisoner who had met Boone at the hostel the two had stayed at following their release from prison. His name was Royston Jackson. Two of Boone's phones were found in a park near Jackson's house and he'd aroused suspicion when initially questioned as he seemed jumpy and he'd marks on his arms suggesting he'd recently been involved in a struggle. His behaviour then became even more strange and erratic and he completely cleaned the inside of his car before leaving it in a car park and heading off to stay with family or even sleeping rough. But then on further examination of his car Flakes of blood were found. Fibres found on Booth's clothing also matched those found on Jackson's clothing and in his car. Mobile phone records showed that Jackson and Boone had met on the Friday evening before Boone went missing. The signal from one of Boone's mobile phones as it powered down was picked up by the phone mast which was closest to Jackson's home. And CCTV showed Boone in Jackson's car at around 9.30pm on the night that Boone disappeared. Detectives also knew that Jackson had killed before, and the similarities between the two killings were startling. Jackson committed his first murder in April 1989, when he was 23. His victim was 16-year-old Stephen Raven, a young man who worked alongside Jackson in the fabric trade in Romford in Essex. It emerged that Stephen Raven had been threatened by Jackson previously, even with murder, and Jackson was widely known by a good number of people as a bully and violent. One Saturday night, Jackson and Stephen Raven both enjoyed a live band and a disco at a nearby village hall. They left together, and by midnight, Stephen Raven was dead. On the 29th of April 1989, a body was discovered in a lane near Dagenham nearby. The body had been subjected to extreme violence, and had also been driven over by a car. There were stab wounds to the groin, and disturbingly Stephen Raven's clothes had been removed and rearranged. Jackson was found guilty of murder, was given life, 
and he served 16 years in prison before being released. Ahead of his trial for the murder of Gordon Boone, detectives re-examined this murder. Living in the hostel, Jackson confessed to his probation officer that he'd killed Stephen Raven after what he claimed was consensual sex. He strangled him because Jackson felt ashamed and wanted to stop the story getting out. But another contradictory confession to a fellow hostel resident deemed unreliable in court was that Jackson accidentally broke his neck during overly vigorous sex. Jackson didn't give a reason for killing Boone in court. He continued to deny involvement. In fact, he didn't give any evidence in court. Rather than going to the witness box to speak in his own defence, he instead spent time waving and smiling at a relative in the public gallery from behind the glass dock. But the prosecution raised telling similarities between the deaths of 73-year-old Boone and 16-year-old Stephen Raven. Both had been found dumped in remote lanes. Both had been beaten and strangled. Both had their clothes partly removed and had been interfered with in a way that implied their killer gained some sort of sexual gratification from their suffering. It was highlighted in court that Jackson, who was bisexual, had made numerous sexual approaches to men in the hostel. Had Boone rebuked his advances? Did they share an interest in bondage which led to his death? Or was it just a minor disagreement that caused Jackson to snap? One explanation put forward by one expert is that Jackson got great sexual gratification through brutality. Others suggested he enjoyed violence after sex. But I guess we're never going to know the answer. Jackson certainly wasn't telling. At Norwich Crown Court, Jackson was found guilty of the murder of Gordon Boone. Mr Justice Underhill said, This was a shocking murder. You are evidently a very dangerous man. I am obliged to pass a sentence of life imprisonment on you, and you will spend the rest of your life in jail. The early release system will not apply in your case. Jackson showed no emotion, and didn't seem the slightest bit bothered as he was taken to the cells, in the certain knowledge that he will spend the rest of his life behind bars. Speaking afterwards with Patrick Barkham in The Guardian, Boone's ex-wife Andrea said, I'm sorry he was murdered. I definitely wouldn't have wanted that. I think that that was a wrong way for him to lose his life. I was hoping he might die peacefully somewhere, but I said I'm not sorry and I'm certainly not going to cry about it. The daughter who Boone abused for eight years did, however, shed a tear. Katie cried once when he died and again when the curtain trundled across his coffin at the crematorium. On the day she heard he was murdered, she fell ill, but she started feeling better on the day of his funeral. He'll never say sorry now. I've got to learn to live with that, Katie said. When asked if she had any fond memories of her dad, she said, I'm not being funny, but I haven't. I can't think of any good memories of my dad. I know he did a bad, bad thing. I'll never forgive him for that. And it took a lot of years for me to love him again. I never loved him the same way as before it happened. But I did love him in my own way. Jackson was again in the news in 2016. You will probably recall the utterly terrible murder of Becky Watts, recently covered wonderfully by Red Handed Podcast. Poor Becky was murdered by her stepbrother Nathan Matthews and his girlfriend Shauna Hoare, who killed and dismembered the teenager in a case I find very difficult to hear about 
as it's just so unpleasant. Sentenced to life in prison, Matthews was in jail alongside Royston Jackson at high security Long Larton Prison when Jackson attacked him by pouring boiling butter over his head and neck. Oh well. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Did you end up having any sympathy at all for Gordon Boone? And what do you think about Royston Jackson? Detectives feel he is a genuine psychopath who would undoubtedly kill again if released and it's hard to disagree. There are stories of other crimes he has committed and it's hard to believe that this isn't the case. For once, I feel a tiny piece of sympathy for the probation service who deemed Jackson safe to release from prison despite the horrific murder of Stephen Raven. One worker at the hostel when he was on licence said that Jackson never looked dangerous or felt dangerous. Known as Roy, he was a quiet, mild man who kept his hair short, dressed in smart shirts and often looked eager to please. Jackson was believed to be making good progress, accepting responsibility for the murder of Stephen Raven. How could anyone know that he was still such a danger? And of all the people to murder and lose your liberty for the rest of your life, where on earth did he pick a 73-year-old convicted paedophile. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I really appreciate it. To support the show and enable me to keep producing weekly episodes, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. You will find 15 bonus episodes along with other exclusive content. This week, I've shared the top 10 countries with the most listeners to this podcast. And of course, please join us on our Facebook group where we discuss all aspects of UK true crime. You'll be made to feel very welcome. So that's all from me for now. So until we speak again next week, it's cheerio.